The uh, elders thought it would be a good idea for us to spend a few weeks in the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, I say a few weeks, probably it will end up being in about 10, actually, as we look at 1 Corinthians. And the Corinthian church was an, an interesting church, no doubt, but also a church um, not terribly unlike our own, a church that was in a, a merchant town, a merchant-centric city on a major trade route had a reputation for sexual immorality, religious diversity, and corruption. And um, no doubt, these, the trappings of their own culture uh, you know, really provided for them some, in some ways, perhaps fortunate, but also unfortunate kind of background and aspects of their life that would uh, no doubt be touched by the gospel and need to be significantly renovated by the gospel. Even with the new moral orientation that the gospel reveals and the regenerated heart brought about in redemption, a corrupt culture can really, you know, impact the moral pollution in our own lives. Um, The ways that we live, the cultures that we grow up in, impact the way that we even read the Bible. They impact our own understanding of what it means to walk in grace. It, it, it impacts even our concept of, of membership in a church, this idea of committing ourselves sacrificially to a body of people such that we would delight ourselves in, in growing in the fellowship of His Son, as verse 9 indicates here in this first chapter. And so it seemed appropriate that we would look at this book of 1 Corinthians and we can see that there are Many issues that are brought up, issues that are absolutely common in every fellowship, uh, issues that it's important that we see that the Lord does uh, have directions for us, help for us in that way as as He desires for us to enjoy our walk with Christ uh, and also to grow in grace uh, and to uh, certainly live lives such that the Son is rightly honored and that we can in turn delight ourselves in that. So 1 Corinthians answers a lot of practical questions in the life of the church. And after we can look basically at some of the things that we can pick up in the first nine verses, uh, I'm unashamedly going to bring to you what I hope to be uh, really an exposition on the, on the doctrine of sanctification uh, this morning. And you'll notice in chapter 1 and verse 2, he does use the term sanctified in the past tense, and so we'll, we'll look at that. But really, the book of 1 Corinthians is a book, it's a letter, that has to do with sanctification. Categorically, it's a letter about sanctification. It's a letter about, hey, this is, this is how you're living, and this is the biblical alternative to that. This is, for instance, a problem that you may have, and if you could actually take the chapters of 1 Corinthians... Uh, Perhaps some of you have the same as me, and you can see that each of these chapters, in a sense, is broken up into yet another issue to deal with. And okay, here's another issue here: the Lord's Supper, for instance, or giving, or um, uh, you know, the way to deal with church discipline, and so forth. And so he he addresses all of these things in this book of First Corinthians. And so certainly, it is a book about sanctification, a letter about sanctification, as we could. Of course, notice that much of the New Testament is written um, with this in mind. 
And you might wonder, you might wonder why. Why would the subject matter of sanctification seem to be so important in the Scriptures? Well, it's because believers live in that stage. Their entire Christian life on earth is lived in the stage of sanctification. Every moment of that. If we understand the biblical concept of justification, it's something that occurs in an instant. As a matter of fact, the point is that chronologically measuring time, justification doesn't take up any of that. (laughs) And so what that means is, is that the stage of sanctification in your life as you walk with Christ takes up the entirety of your Christian life on earth. And so it would behoove us, you know, as uh, the Apostle Paul and the others, particularly in the New Testament, recognize, is that we, we, we delight ourselves in the instructions that God has given us. We don't have to keep falling on our face, as it were, as God's people. We have the sweet truths of God. We can look to Him and follow Him. We can delight ourselves in what He has called, again in chapter 1, verse 9, the fellowship of His Son. The fellowship of His Son. That's not a solitary place. (laughs) It's a body of believers that have been called by God, right, to walk together to Zion, as it were. So let's look here at the first few verses in this chapter and see what the Lord has for us here. Verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, we've come off the heels of an exposition of the book of Jonah, and we, we saw in Jonah a pattern that God had, right? Uh, this pattern that we see, we can see in all of life, we can also see in the scriptures, creation, fall, redemption, creation, fall, redemption. And we look here, we can look in the book of Jonah, and what we have is a people who have absolutely fallen. Right? The people of Assyria, right there in Nineveh. And so what did God do? Well, he called a messenger, right? And he sent that messenger, and he told them the truth, right? And then they repented. And then, and then we see what took place after that. No doubt the same, in a sense, pattern occurred in the city of Corinth. Paul called by the will of God. Why? Why was, call, why was, call, why was the Apostle Paul called? Is, it just so, is that just a, a random kind of vocation choice that he, that he had? No. He was called to a number of places, specifically, not least of which, the city of Corinth. He was called in order to redeem a people. God calls a messenger. In order to redeem a people, God calls a messenger. The Apostle Paul and Sosthenes certainly involved in that. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, we've already looked at, as we look at the New Testament particularly, it's important for us to not miss, again, the simple rudimentary aspects of of the church. The Apostle Paul addresses what? This is the church in Corinth. This is the local body of believers. It's not unlike the church uh, in, 
in Philippi. It's not unlike the church in Laodicea. It's not unlike the church in these other places, right? It's a, it's a church uh, that had a messenger sent to it called of God, a church that uh, is filled with people that are also called of God by the proclamation of the Word of God. It's a church that enjoys really, for the most part, a comprehensive giftedness, this idea that, okay, what do we have here? What is, what is it? God has quite a collection for us, the church here. All right, the Providence Reformed Baptist Church. What what do we have in our midst here? And these are the, all of us are people that God has collected. He's brought together. Right, we're the church here. That's and so and so. Uh, not unlike the local church in Corinth. Not unlike any of the other local churches. And then he begins to uh, really. I think it's appropriate that we see, in a sense, these are synonyms for the church. Those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Those called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Sanctified in Christ, called to be saints. Together with the saints in other places who call on the name of the Lord. Now, this little phrase, call on the name of the Lord, kind of piqued my attention a little bit, and it reminded me of those days of Seth way back in Genesis chapter 4. Anybody recall what happened in the days of Seth in Genesis chapter 4? Well, it's the same thing that happened in Corinth. They began to call on the name of the Lord. Right? They began to call on the name of the Lord. Verse 3, grace and peace to you. From God. Grace and peace to you. Don't miss this origin. You want grace and peace? You're not going to get it any other place but from God. It's from God. Grace and peace to you from God. We... we we often look in other places for that. But you'll not find it there. You'll not find it there. You can find other things, but you'll not find grace and peace. They cannot be obtained in any other way. Verse 4, I give thanks. Here's the Apostle Paul again, just as we see as in his other letters, he's dropping to his knees, and what is he doing? He's giving thanks to the Lord. There he goes again. There he goes again. Paul's prayers always have an orientation of thanksgiving, but it is an empty thanks. Hey, thanks for being so great. No, the Apostle Paul doesn't talk like that. For the grace given in Christ Jesus that they're enriched in speech and knowledge, verse 5. Verse 7, that they not lack in any spiritual gift. What do you think it was like growing up in Corinth? Do you think that they needed to have their speech and knowledge enriched? Listen, look around. There's a lot to say and know. But does it need to be enriched? 
And the Apostle Paul was thanking the Lord that he saw in the Corinthians that they had, in fact, been set apart. That there's this this certainty with which God has come. Verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Confirmed how? I've had men sit on my couch and tell me how great a man they are. Unconfirmed. The church at Corinth had their life in Christ, their regeneration, confirmed by what it is that the Lord was doing. Talk is cheap. But a transition brought about by the application of the gospel by the Holy Spirit is not cheap. And it brings about a certain change, a good change. And that's what the Apostle Paul is so thankful about the Corinthians and in the Corinthians 4. And then he shifts into some attributes for the Lord of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, He will sustain you to the end. He will sustain you guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is faithful, verse 9. Now, why would those things be important to the Corinthian church? Sustained, held guiltless. God is faithful. Why would those things, those attributes of Christ, why would they be important to the Corinthian church? Well, for the same reason they're important to us. You see, the Corinthian church grew up, as it were, before they came to Christ in the same sort of rat race that we have. They were under the impression that life was like a hamster wheel. That you just get on it, and you run, 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 and you buy, and you sell, and you try to get all the gusto you can out of life, and then you die, and that's the way, that's life. But when they become regenerate in Christ, everything changed. Right? They began to enter into the holy war that God declared In Genesis chapter 3, there will be enmity between the adversary of our souls and the Redeemer of our souls. And so they entered into that. While they didn't have to go anywhere, everything changed. And oh, what a joy it must have been for them to hear that that one in whom they were in union with, the Lord Jesus Christ, would sustain them to the end. And all this guilt that they knew they had, they would be forever free from that because of what Christ had done. That He would always be faithful. He would always be faithful. And we see another synonym for that into which they were called. The local body of believers. The universal church, if you want to call it that. He calls this the fellowship of the Son. The fellowship of the Son. 
And that is a, that is a, a phrase that I propose we spend the rest of our lives investigating. The fellowship of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the fellowship look like? Well, it looks like meeting versus experiencing. One of my, one of my dear friends indicated to me regarding his declaration of the gospel to the lost, he said, you know, I don't just want people to hear the gospel. I want them to experience the gospel. And as a matter of fact, as one who proclaims the gospel, he would go on to say that I don't want them only to meet me, but to experience me. And if you knew my friend, you would realize that you could only experience him. Your interaction with Him is not anything other than an experience. And this is the idea that we get here. But you certainly recognize that our culture militates against this exposition of what true fellowship is. I mean, we live in a culture where we speak about being unfriended on Facebook. Now, if someone can unfriend you on Facebook, then the implication is is that they friended you on Facebook. And so therefore the implication is follow this amazing logic that they were your friend before, right? And so that that is friendship, right? And that gets into uh, the the brain housing group, right? And you likely whether you delight yourself in it or not, begin to really take in this idea that, oh, friendship is like this. It's a very light, momentary thing. There's no depth. It's very shallow. And the Apostle Paul, again, he is absolutely declaring and crushing to powder this notion when he, sent, when he creates as a synonym our new life in Christ with other believers in Christ in the local church as the fellowship of His Son. The fellowship of His Son. There's depth there. There's goodness there. It's not the rat race of life. There's no version of the fellowship of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that looks like Corinth. In the culture of Corinth, as is true for our own culture here. Now let's consider the subject matter of sanctification. The subject matter of sanctification. As I mentioned, as believers, our entire earthly lives are spent in this stage of gospel redemption. Our entire life as believers. Now, we can think, for instance, and if we were to look, for instance, over here at Romans chapter 8, we have some of these stages laid out for us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the Apostle Paul is explaining in some ways the order of salvation. 
For those whom he foreknew, that is before the foundation of the world, the men in the theology study on Thursday, uh, we discussed the council of redemption. And that's where these things occurred. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there are a number of stages here. There are some that are implied. For instance, in verse 29, there is the stage of being foreknown. You and me don't know anything about this. That was before we were born. That was before anything on the earth was created, actually. And then we also have this idea of being predestined. He didn't ask our permission for that either. Right? He just did that. But what did he predestine us for? You say, oh, well, he predestined us to justify us by a substitutionary atonement. Yeah, that's right. But you still haven't entered into chronological time yet. Right? Not as it is measured with you being regenerate. He predestined us to justify us, yes. But let's read the rest of chapter 8, verse 29. To be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Among many brothers. That is a term that certainly includes females... And it is a term that also would be a synonym, just like in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, the fellowship of His Son. So, it turns out uh, that God has predestined you not merely for justification, but that the entire process would occur such that you would be conformed to the image of His Son. When you are justified... If we could stop the clock and not start it yet, at the moment that you are justified in Christ, if you could measure your conformity to Christ immediately before your justification and immediately upon your justification, how much conformity to Christ has occurred? None. None of it has occurred. Your legal status has changed. Right? Your legal status has changed. You're justified in Christ. You have taken to yourself what the Lord Jesus has purchased for you. And while I do not think that the concept and the illustration of a judge is a very 
long-standing one and something that is a place where we would want to continually go back to regarding our relationship with God the Father or the Son because He isn't our judge in that sense. He's our loving Father and He's our brother in the Lord Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, if we want to use that as an illustration, the idea holds that you walk up to the judge of all the earth, the Father, and He slaps down the gavel and He says, Not guilty. Not guilty because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has purchased for you. You turn around and you walk out of the courtroom, but there's one thing that you know. You did all that stuff. And you're the same guy walking out the door as you were that walked in the door. You're the same guy. But when you walk out that door, the actions of being renewed by Christ begin. The comprehensive work that the Holy Spirit absolutely by necessity will do in your life begins. And the Apostle Paul is talking about that amongst the Corinthians. Confirmed in you. Confirmed how? Oh, well, because I prayed a prayer. No, the Apostle Paul is not talking about that. He's not talking about a man that sits in his proverbial living room and says, yeah, I prayed a prayer. Nope, that's not what he's talking about. He's like, oh, Paul is like, no, I see Christ in you. Yeah, you guys are a chocolate mess, but nonetheless, I see Christ in you. And that's what he's talking about. Confirmed in the fellowship of his Son. Sanctification is a lifelong process. Now I will tell you that I have happily taken in the works of Louis Burkhoff, Herman Bavink, and Walter Marshall as we have considered and look at this doctrine of sanctification. And Burkhoff helps us with the word translated here, sanctification, In verse 2 of chapter 1, to those sanctified in Christ. And without any more understanding of this term sanctification as it has to do with a growing holiness in the Lord Jesus, you might be inclined as you read verse 2 of chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians to think of sanctification in the same way that you think of justification. Because he does use the term in past tense here. And you might consider yourself sanctified. And were you to consider yourself sanctified in the first sense of the word, that would be absolutely true. The word is properly translated here in its proper tense, for sure. But in this case, it's being used as one who's set apart. One who has been justified by Christ and is now set on his way as one who no longer lives as he did. One who has been selected. It's as if you uh, absolutely were chosen. You were picked up to be used of the Lord. That's this idea that's carried in verse 2. This idea of being consecrated and devoted to the service of God. If I go buy a coffee cup in the store, 
And I say, yep, this is the one. I'm going to get this cup, and I'm going to put it in my basket, and I'm going to take it home for the express purpose of drinking coffee in this cup. But in this entire process of picking it up, of putting it in the basket and taking it home, it has not served the purpose for which I bought it. I haven't put any coffee in it yet, right? It's set apart for that, but it hasn't happened yet. This is this concept of being sanctified in this way, being set apart, separated from the world's defilement to share in God's purity. Being set apart. When you think of yourself, how conscious are you of this separation? When you think of sinning, and I hope you do think of sinning, I hope it doesn't just happen. But when you think of sinning, do you think to yourself, no, 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 wait a minute. I wasn't purchased for the purpose of sinning. I was purchased for the purpose of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. And so the purpose for which my sinful flesh inclines me is not the purpose for which I have been purchased. And this is the idea that we get. How conscious are we of this separation? The second way in which the term translated sanctified in this case is used, and the most often case here is used in the ethical sense to describe the quality that is necessary to stand in close relation to God and to serve Him acceptably. And in these ideas, we come with the same notion that we got in Romans chapter 8, this idea that we've been saved to be conformed to the image of Christ. For instance, we could look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. The Bible says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that's predestination, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. That's conformity to Christ. The same process the Apostle Paul is explaining. He explained it to the Romans. He explained it to the Ephesians. He shows what happens to the Corinthians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. This is why this concept of sanctification is so important. The reality is, the unfortunate reality is, if we were to go back to uh, this uh, rather shallow, I understand, illustration of the coffee cup, it seems that many, many people are absolutely content to be the cup that would eventually be used for coffee, but to remain in the basket and never actually be used. Never being conformed to the image It hasn't even entered into service yet, this little coffee cup, right? Only when it begins to enter into service does it enter into this process of sanctification. And also, it begins to enter in fully into this concept of the fellowship of His Son. Sanctification involves a constant preoccupation with our faith. Would you say that you're preoccupied with your faith? Preoccupation means obsessed, absorbed, 
engrossed, dominated by, consumed. Children, are you consumed by faith in Christ? Or are you consumed by something else? Are you consumed by games? Are you consumed by toys? Are you consumed by social media? Are you consumed by how you look alongside others? Are you consumed by the hamster wheel process of the world? Are you consumed by what you want to do, what you want to be? Or are you consumed by faith in Christ and what it is that the Lord is doing? Now, as we get some assistance from Herman Bavinck, we see a few other sort of aspects, if you will, of this the beautiful diamond, if you will, of sanctification. Although the moral law remains the rule of life for believers, the gospel doesn't exhort Christians to the holy war against sin from the terrors of the law, but derives them from the high calling to which believers are called. Now, what he's saying is this. We think of the Old Testament law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, right? And those are absolutely, uh, will absolutely remain uh, for us the, the standard, if you will, of the Christian life, of the, the moral ethic, the ethic of the Christian life. The Lord Jesus certainly affirmed that idea in places no less than the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. But what Babink is helping us to understand is, is that being terrified by the law's condemnation is not the way that God inclines us to sanctification. That, that is not the point. If we're terrorized by the law of God, then we're not understanding the law of God in the life of a believer. We're no longer condemned That's the place of the law for those that have not been redeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand condemned, right? Because those who imperfectly obey the law of God are condemned and rightly are headed for an eternal hell. But the Lord Jesus Christ has completely obeyed the full aspect of the law as well as paid the penalty for our lack of obedience. And that's the substitutionary atonement that takes place in our justification. The New Testament and the Old Testament exhort believers into the holy war against sin from this first notion of sanctification that we've been set apart We've been given a high calling. And this really reveals true faith. True faith breaks off our false self-confidence and pride and makes an end to all notions of self-righteousness. Yes, you're right. I can't obey the law of God. I need faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a foolish notion to think that I can, that, that I can successfully be perfect in my obedience to God. But true faith in Christ breaks off that self-confidence and pride. It affirms it as what it is, foolish. Places an end to all notions of self-righteousness. 
The faith that justifies isn't alone. It's the faith that exuberantly leans into sanctification. Christ was not a new lawgiver above Moses. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't come to simply give us another, more easily agreeable law. That's not what He did. He came to announce firmly and openly redemption in Christ through the substitutionary atonement that was that was pictured in the Lamb and in the slain animal in the Old Testament. We don't live as a result of good works, but for them. We don't fulfill the moral law for eternal life, but out of it. And so the other idea that uh, can in some ways offend is this idea that we don't, we, we don't uh, enter into the law of God except as a way of duty. Now, the concept of duty to obey God is something that makes, it seems like a good number of people very, very uncomfortable. Because when we introduce the concept of duty into following the Lord Jesus Christ, all of a sudden there seems to be a burden that's laid upon people as if, oh, well, I thought there was nothing for me to do. Well, if you thought that receiving the grace of Christ, the free grace, the free unconditional grace of Christ, uh, by way of justification and sanctification and glorification, if if your sense was that in receiving this free grace of God, unmerited by you, if you felt that there was in that nothing for you to do, then you really do have a wrong idea about the gospel. There is much to do in the gospel. And the Lord Jesus Christ has done it all in the case of your justification. And in the case of your sanctification, we also take that in by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our brother, with whom we are in union with. But in the case of sanctification, it isn't a passive work. It's an active work. We're entering into this with the Lord Jesus, and every step of the way, we merit nothing. It's all of Christ. And it's all of grace. But it involves your sweat. It involves your calories. It involves your labors. And at the end of the day, when you get to heaven, you'll not say, oh, look what I've earned. You'll say, oh, what has God wrought in me? We must distinguish between law and duty. Duty isn't a dirty word. It's an expression of thanks and gratitude to our Savior, the Lord Jesus. It's not unlike when you begin to really love your mother and you decide that you're going to take your muddy shoes off at the door. She still loved you when you wore your dirty shoes in the house. But now you think differently about her because you understand how much you love her. The natural man is offended by the law. 
by its perfections and demands. But the moment we learn of the other righteousness and holiness which God has given in Christ, which He gives us through faith, our attitude towards the law and our sense of its significance changes completely. Are you offended by the law? Have you ever really wanted to accomplish something that was kind of difficult? Something that you felt that you probably could accomplish but needed some instructions? Have you ever been in that situation? I expect that most of us have. What was your attitude toward the instructions in that case? Did you hate them or did you love them? Now, all comments aside from the poor way in which many instructions are written today, the reality is is that likely we appreciated the instructions and the exhortations from the New Testament, the moral law of God, are to us something that we should, in fact, delight ourselves in. They are instructions to us. We don't need to be offended by them. We also see that there are distinctions between believers, and this also can make people feel uncomfortable. In the generation where every kid gets a trophy, and the unfortunate truth is that the term snowflake does apply in many cases, the reality is is that the Scriptures do reveal that there are differences between believers, between the young men, for instance, in 1 John 2, who have indeed overcome the wicked one, but must be careful lest they lose the victory, and the fathers in the faith who have had long experience in the struggle and have received a deeper insight into the knowledge of Christ, 1 John chapter 2. There's also a distinction made in the apostolic period between believers and churches who were steadfast in the faith, abundant in love, patient in suffering, and those others who allowed themselves to be misled by all sorts of error and were drawn into all kinds of sin. And I would reference Revelations chapter 1, 2, and 3. There are distinctions between believers. And the Bible urges us, as does the Lord Jesus Christ and the writers of the New Testament, by way of exhortation and encouragement, to take to ourselves an earnest desire to become those who are faithful. Will we become mothers and fathers in the faith? Or will we be laid aside? Believers have a spiritual struggle, but with the unregenerate there's also a struggle, but it isn't spiritual. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones has some helpful sermons on sanctification, which I would highly recommend to you, and I can send a few of them your way by way of linking. But nonetheless, he helps for us to understand that sanctification is not primarily an instant second blessing that some might describe it as. And it also... uh, isn't something uh, that is passive. 
in your life. It involves a tremendous amount of work and application by the Word of God. And so it is possible uh, that we may think of it in those terms. And so we may believe that we're waiting on something that isn't going to happen until we really step into efforts. For instance, there are some that upon the day of their redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ, their justification, they no longer have a desire to do certain sins. But there are others who struggle their entire lives with things like that. And you may say, well, this one didn't have the same faith or something like that. But if it worked in that way, then it would work the same way for everyone. And so the Apostle Paul is helping for us to understand that sanctification is, as the Apostle Paul says, something that's more akin to the work in the gym. It's a slow, steady process. You don't expect to roll up to the gym and be just as strong, just as fast, just as agile, just as cut as you want to be the first minute you stand in there, right? You recognize that if you're serious, you've entered into a life of work. (laughs) And that's true of sanctification. For instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, the Bible says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief produces death. False notions of sanctification won't get you sanctification. There can be tears. The tears of the world don't lead to redemption. There's nothing else there but tears. The tears of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ produce a repentance that leads to salvation. Walter Marshall is helpful in that he says the holiness to which we are called and enabled through our regeneration is spiritual. It's spiritual. It consists not only in external works of piety and charity, but in holy thoughts, imaginations, and affections of the soul. Not only in refraining from sinful actions, but in delighting to do the will of God, cheerful obedience to God. Most look upon holiness as a means to the end of eternal life. When we think of the moral law of God, it is possible that just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, it may be that all we see are things we shouldn't do. Don't do this. Don't do that. But the Lord Jesus Christ helped for us to understand in His his exegesis of the moral law of God in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, that this is a spiritual sanctification. It's not merely in an action. And it also isn't the means to the end of eternal life. In other words, we aren't purchasing for ourselves eternal life in our sanctification.
Now, this is what I think Walter Marshall does that is particularly helpful. We are inclined, again, to view our right thinking and our growing in grace and our actions regarding good works as a means to an end. And so therefore, we're inclined to think that it's very simple to be holy. And he references the rich young ruler when he inquired of the Lord Jesus, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Matthew chapter 19, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Do you see the implication? It's completely wrong-headed. It's the utterly wrong paradigm for salvation. What shall I do to obtain eternal life? And the implication was, is that the category of holiness or of good works is a category that is the category of a means to an end. But holiness isn't the means to an end. He also references Samson in Judges chapter 16, verse 20. You're familiar with the story. He's tricked with all these different, all these different uh, things. He's got his hair tied up. He's, uh, you know, he's he's tied up with, with cords and so forth that he breaks free and all that. And the last time, after Samson's hair is cut, what does he think? Well, his thoughts are made clear to us in Judges 16.20. He thinks, I'll go out as at other times before and shake myself free. Samson, I'm persuaded, was a a precursor to the Texan. He was very confident, but he was dead wrong. I'll go out as other times. No? No, you won't, Samson. This is the end of the road for you. You had a misunderstanding, an urgent misunderstanding of the gifts that God has given you and also how to walk in faith. It is true, great is the mystery of godliness that 1 Timothy 3.16 records. We must unlearn many of our old deeply rooted notions and become fools that we may be wise. This is the genius, I think, of Walter Marshall. He helps us to understand that sanctification is a double knowledge. It's a double knowledge. It's unlearning and it's learning. Unlearning and learning. Have you ever had, have you ever created a habit that was wrong? Have you ever done something so many times? And it turns out it was actually wrong. And then when you go to do what you find to be the right way to do it, it's hard. It's hard to do that the right way. Have you ever have you ever seen that? You ever experienced that? Again, you you do something 
uh, in a certain way for a long time, and then and then you've you've come to the realization that this is actually destructive. It isn't working. It's not effective. And then you come to understand the right way, but your hands still go through the motions of that which is wrong. And you've got to unlearn the old and learn the new. Teachableness is key. I would rather see as a servant in our fellowship someone who knows nothing and is teachable than someone who thinks they know everything and isn't. I would rather serve alongside someone who knows nothing and is yet earnest and teachable than one who thinks he knows everything and isn't. Teachableness is key. Job 6.24, teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. Job 34.32, teach me what I do not see. Psalm 25.4, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Psalm 25.5, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. Psalm 27.11, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Psalm 86.11, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 119.12, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Psalm 119.29, Put the false ways far from me, that's unlearning. And graciously teach me your law, that's learning. Psalm 119.66, Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Psalm 119.68, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Psalm 119.124, Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love, and teach me your statutes. Psalm 119.135, Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. Psalm 143.10, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Many people, it seems that their justification brings an end to the necessity to know the Scriptures. It's as if the whole thing is over when it's only barely begun. Teach me, teach me, teach me, teach me. And so we could ask the question, what are you learning? What What did you learn last week about your own ways and the ways of God? There's a, there's a cultural idea that the law and the exhortations of the Bible are bad. And that there's no, there's no desirability in them. But that's absolutely untrue. We see this cheerful appreciation for the instructions in the Word of God. Oh God! I was messing it up before, but now I have the instructions. What a joy it is to follow you faithfully. Christ is our holiness in the same sense that He is our righteousness. 
Justification, as Bavink says, clears our guilt, comes before sanctification, which cleanses us from our pollution. As I mentioned, justification is a forensic act. It's the juridical act. It changes the status of a person, but it doesn't change our nature. The pollution of sin is still present. That's what sanctification does. It changes the inner nature of man. Unlearning and learning. Tearing down and building up. Both are purely of grace and their gifts. I sat with a man only weeks ago who insisted to me that becoming like Christ after his justification was a passive activity in which he did nothing. He did nothing. And so therefore he relives the day of his justification every single day. Never, never growing. As I reflect on 34 wonderful years of marriage, I am so thankful that I didn't repeat the first year 34 times. It got better and better and better. And that first year was great, but it got better and better. And better. The redemption God grants is meant to accomplish complete deliverance from sin and include sanctification and glorification from the beginning. Sanctification begins with being set apart, as mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. But it isn't exhausted by what is done in and for believers in a passive sense. The old believers used to call it continued obedience or continued repentance. Continued repentance. We have things to repent of every day. And that repentance sets us on the path of growing such that we don't repeat the same sin. But yet, how many of us are completely content with a changeless day? We stop at confession, but we never really get to full repentance. Repentance is turning, 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 turning. Away from. It's unlearning that which is bad and learning that which is good. Believer, don't be satisfied with confession. Be satisfied with repentance. An unlearning and a learning. That's sanctification. Let us pray.